Are you skeptical or optimistic about the future of AI on how it could help or hurt you? I am cautiously optimistic. Okay. Uh, the reason I say that is we've already had to straddle a lot of lines as to how we utilize technology that improves what we do in the studio. From Resilient Partners, this is the Resilient Insights Podcast. Every episode offers in-depth insights on the key debates and conversations shaping Washington and the world. From policy to leadership to the lighter side of life, we're your source for thoughtful discussions. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and engaged. Before I get to my interview with Dan, I wanted to take a quick moment and recognize the person who is most responsible for making this interview happen, and that would be Dan's wife, Sarah. Sarah is like a sister to me. She lived with my family and I during the height of COVID, helping raise our daughter during this very difficult time. During the interview, Dan and I on numerous occasions make reference to the time we met when he gave a performance on Long Island, New York as part of the Lord of the 52nd Street. Sarah was with me during that performance and met Dan. It was love at first sight. They eventually got married in the rest of history. Sarah, I love you, and I'm so happy that you're happy with Dan. Now to my interview with Dan. I hope you enjoy it. Dan, welcome to the Resilience Insights Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Joshua. Great to be here. Hey, it's so happy to have you on. I like to think of this episode as the give the people what they want episode. So for those who don't know, Dan Orlando was a key feature in my monthly newsletter uh, called Resilient Insights. Uh, if you don't subscribe to that newsletter, visit www.resilientpartners.us. Or if you're like me, who's always on LinkedIn and trying to decrease my email clutter, you can go right into LinkedIn. There's one click, you'll get it directly delivered to you. So it's a great feature. So Dan, I want to dive in today and talk a little bit about yourself. Um, when I said this was give the people uh, what they want episode, um, you're a little bit famous in my world right now. I had a ton of people reach out to me who were like, Who's this Dan Orlando guy, and why is his album so good? So why don't we start there? Tell, tell the, the viewers a little bit about yourself and what you're currently working on. So I'm a singer-songwriter from the greater Philadelphia area, and I just released my first studio album called Heritage Trail, which you so generously featured in your last newsletter. It's a singer-songwriter pop country record that basically tells the story of my life. And it's interesting that you chose the theme of resilience because I felt like I've really needed to lean into that mindset, especially over the past five to six years. Um, I grew up studying the piano. I had wonderful teachers, was conservatory trained at the University of Cincinnati. I worked a number of years on the session circuit and the wedding band circuit in New York. Um, I spent about four years in Florida working on a developmental record deal that unfortunately never developed, uh, although I wrote a lot of great songs and had some neat experiences from on a performance level. Uh, I had to go independent uh, and come back to the Hudson Valley in New York and try to start fresh. Um, and it was during that period that I met Richie Kanata, who was Billy Joel's original saxophone player uh, for about 10 years. Um, there's a good chance if you turn on the radio and you hear one of Billy Joel's classic songs that this is the guy playing saxophone, soprano sax, flute, 
on all of those wonderful records, whether it be Turnstiles, The Strangers, or Glass Houses. So Richie and I connected in New York City. He started to mentor me, and he saw that, you know, in his words, I was a young guy that was trying to go about it in an old school way. And we really connected in that sense. So uh, fast forward. Richie is a little old school for the record. He is. He is old school. Um, He likes to talk about the fact that what we do is play with danger. Um, And what makes a great show is one in which the audience knows that it's very possible you could fail. Um, You know, you've seen the show. We, you and I became friends um, via the Lords of 52nd street. I'm sure we'll get into all of that uh, (laughs) over the next hour, but. Well, uh, (laughs) I don't know if we want people to know the real story of the first time we met, but maybe we could give a, PG or a G-rated version of that. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. Um, So we'll circle back to that. But in in the meantime, um, Richie sort of awoke in me a lot of fundamentals and principles that I wanted to center my life uh, as an artist and a performer around, which was just focusing on, you know, the basics of being an entertainer, whether it's being on time, following up with a client, understanding what the needs are, putting the audience before anything else. So, you know, if you make a mistake, if you're having a bad day, you have to compartmentalize that. And our job as a performer is to connect. That's the number one job. Everything else just kind of is secondary in that respect. It seems like a lot of what you're talking about fits into this broader theme that I'm on, which is the importance of resilience. And so when I started my company a few months ago, almost six months ago, you know, resilience was the key theme for me. And when I decided to start this podcast, what I really wanted to do was try something a little bit differently, which was I work in politics and public policy and government affairs, but sometimes we forget the lighter side of life, which is what I wanted to cover on this. And uh, when I think about music in my life, it's been a huge form of inspiration. And so, you know, I want to hear a little bit about how music inspired you to get into the music uh, business and become a, a professional musician. When I was a kid, I was having a lot of trouble uh, speaking, and Mm. somehow my parents, they kept putting me in different environments to try to get me additional educational resources, Um, and I, you know, I have two wonderful parents. Um, Great. My brother and I, my brother, thank you. My brother and I are extremely lucky uh, in life uh, to have them, and music you know, was baked into the identity, especially on my mother's side, but they're both music enthusiasts. Um, My mother's side had a few of her older sisters would go out and tour locally as a quartet. Um, Her father liked to play piano and sing. She had a great uncle that could hear music and play it, uh, wrote with music photographic memory that I actually looked up a little later. But the point in saying all that is that music was an easier way to, for me to communicate my emotions as a child than actually mm-hmm. being able to speak because I had a lot of trouble with that. So I really gravitated towards the piano and orchestral works. Um, there is a really famous movie. I don't know how famous it is now, but as, as a young child, I was really into uh, Disney's Fantasia because mm. they would cut to different orchestral <laughs> themes. And it was like, you know, Mickey jumping around on different music notes and stuff. So that's one of the earliest memories I had of going, oh, wow, this isn't just some sort of an art form or these aren't just waves and vibrations. It's 
the ability to communicate emotion and to be vulnerable without having to choose words and feel limited by language. So that was really the genesis of all of it. And that continues to be the main inspiration for why I love to write and create and perform. To this day, I still feel like it's the most authentic, real expression of who I am as a person. It's how I can cross different boundaries and convey what I'm feeling on a deeper level. Um, and I've, I had a mentor in New York City. Her name's Carrie Cole. She's still really doing wonderful work in artist development, vocal coaching, and industry coaching in general. And she said something that really resonated with me in that artists give people permission to feel. Mm. So music is that way to tap into your emotional center in ways that you may not be able to recognize or you can't channel yourself, but it's our job to hone our craft enough and then try to get to the central emotion of what we're trying to communicate and then give fans and listeners an opportunity to feel on a deeper level. So is it safe to say that music, the piano, songwriting is sort of the three pillars of your own personal resilience? Absolutely. Um, trying what to, that, what does that mean to you? It, I think it means that it just, that I'm, I'm committed to it in a way that I'm commercializing it almost as a means of survival, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> me too, it just, you know, it's true. Like yeah, yeah, it encompasses yeah. so much of my identity um, that to be honest, I just knew that I would kind of be useless doing anything else. You know, <laughs> if I was, sitting at a cubicle or if I was trying to go through, you know, accounting balance sheets, all I would be thinking about was the next song I want to write or the thing I heard on the radio and wondering, oh, why did they go to that chord on the bridge? Or, oh, wow, that was an interesting harmony part there. Or, ooh, look at the cello layers and the echo reverb and all of that stuff. You know, I would just be processing that anyway. So especially when I lived in the Hudson Valley, which is when I wrote music in my head, it's the lead single that you featured from Heritage Trail. I wrote that song actually riding my bike on the Heritage Trail in Goshen, mm. New York. And because I, I remember thinking like when that song came to me in just a wave of inspiration. And a part of me was going, you know, why? Like, why God or why the universe or, you know, why whoever you believe in? Uh, you know, for me, I'm a person of faith. I'm a proud salad bar Catholic. Um, I like to show up in line. You know, I pick what I like. I have certain issues with things, but by and large, I do consider myself a strong person of faith and think that, you know, we're all destined to contribute to the greater good in one way or another. Having said that, I thought, you know, why do I continue to still receive this music in this way that's so visceral, you know? And I was really kind of in a, in a state of depression. I, I think that song was just a way of me recognizing that, you know, this is a longer mission here. You're, I, I felt like I was given these gifts and the ability, you know, to do what I do and do what I love. Um, but let, let me kind of take you on that for a second. Yeah, so sure. One of the, the paths I want to take this conversation on a little bit is the importance of songwriting. And so you write your music. Um, I want to kind of compare it here in the field that I work in, which is, you know, government affairs, public affairs, communication, 
I always get questions all the time from people who were me 20 years ago. It's like, what, what's the one piece of advice you would give me? And I'm like, learn to write and learn to communicate. Because at the end of the day, yes, I wish I had studied math and science at a greater level. But even in that field, you know, you, you know, Amanda, my sister-in-law, sure. you know, she's a doctor. She still has to communicate and um, be able to write and do all that sort of stuff. And that's what makes her special as a person being a doctor. So, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are always looking for that inspiration on how to, you know, write a big memo for a client or a proposal for a prospective client or a response to something happening in the public policy space. How is that process any different from your process in songwriting? And how do you find that inspiration to write? And what message would you give people listening and watching to this on how they can find their inspiration to be a better writer based upon your experiences as a songwriter? Sure. I think the first thing I would say is do it. And I know that sounds simple, but a lot of times really intelligent people suffer from paralysis by analysis, where even before, and I'll <laughs> raise my hand. For those who are listening, I just raised my hand. Uh, for those who are watching, will get my joke and probably understand that. <laughs> no, it's the truth. You know, we um, we talk ourselves out of, you know, this this great idea that we had because, you know, we let fear and anxiety and our ultra sensitive lens to critique ourselves stop us from just initiating a thought. So, so just first, just do it is what you're just, saying. Just do it. Just throw yourself in the ring and just start. Because is it when you have all those random thoughts in your head, is it as simple as just putting them on paper and seeing what comes together? It's so my process typically involves the melody and the chords and the arrangement come to me in a very visceral way. Mm. So that that is one thing where I feel like I do get the entire scope of musically what I'm going to need to communicate. And then occasionally I'll get the hook line or I'll get a specific line that rises to the surface. Um, so that's what happened with music in my head. That's a perfect example. So I'm riding my bike on this trail. I start to have the melody and the wave of this inspiration. And then I started to think about, you know, what story do I want to tell? Where is this coming from? The piece of emotion. And so this is the second part of my advice is don't be afraid of collaboration. Mm. Um, so because music in my head, this this particular singular song of mine was co-written with a writer out of Brooklyn. Her name's Kelsey Pierce. We've been friends for a long time. Uh, we met in my first stint in New York um, when I was just starting to put myself out there. I was meeting great musicians and writers. Um, and she's extremely talented um, uh, lyricist and uh, melody writer and writer in general. But to me, her one of her great strengths as a writer is lyrics, um, which is something that I struggle with depending on the song. So sometimes I can write a full lyric if I feel maybe a little less attached to it emotionally or it's mm. kind of like a less vulnerable idea that I'm trying to communicate. Um, if it's more of a big picture idea, it, it helps to have a collaborator that I trust that can tell the story in a way that still resonates with the original musical idea. Um, and so that's what I did. I recorded basically me singing gibberish and nonsense with <laughs> with the hook line where it was supposed to appear within the scope of the song. And then 
Uh, I met with Kelsey a couple of times over Zoom. She sat with the idea, then she turned around, and that entire first verse and chorus, she said, what do you think? And I was blown away. I, I just was like, that's it. So that's then we it. finished it together. Um, and that's also the rest of that record. My other collaborator, Jason Pennock, was the writer that I worked with during my time in Florida. Same principle. He had skill sets that that come a little slower to me. So when I was able to bring him these complete thoughts musically, a hook line, and then know like this is kind of the thesis of what I want to write, he was able to fill in a lot of the blanks or at least get that started, and then we could round it out together. So so, so just do it, collaboration, what else? Uh, yeah, I would think do it, collaborate. What inspires you? Like when you wake up in the morning and you – like, what's that kick of inspiration that says, I could turn this into a song or a piano riff or does it just come natural to you or is there something? Yeah, it comes natural to me. And it to break it down to its simplest form, it's fun. I enjoy doing mm. it. It's yeah. to create is like there's a little endorphin buzz that goes off when you have a thought that only exists in your mind. And then, you know, you continue to. It's almost like a ball of clay that just gets dropped in your lap and you have to mold it and shape it over and over and over again to where, you know, once you arrive at something that feels finished, you know, there's a little reward system in my brain that goes, wow, look at that. It's a, yeah, you, get a, you, you get a high off of it or an excitement off of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's kind of go down the path, if that's the right way. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, sure. I want to talk a little bit about your album. And I want to talk a little bit about the hat on my head. And uh, the hat on my head is what's this weird symbol of a cross that I got. And, and who do they represent and what do you do with this weird symbol? Sure, sure. Let's start with the hat because it's a great hat. Um, so the hat you're wearing is a logo for the Lords of 52nd Street, which is the original Billy Joel band that I have had the distinct pleasure and honor to be their lead singer and piano player for four and a half years now. So the entire catalog um, is on the table. Most of what we focus on is what this lineup did together as a trio. So Billy's first albums um, that they toured with, and then when he left L.A. in a row, they cut Turnstiles, The Stranger, 52nd Street, and Glass there, House. There's a song about him leaving L.A. Or, or California, if I'm not mistaken. I'll say goodbye to Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. That's a yeah. great song. Yeah. Um, now, fast forward. Um, this is also a matter of public knowledge, and I would ask everyone listening to maybe offer a prayer to my mentor and dear friend, Richie Kanata, who's recovering from a major medical emergency he had in the middle of September. So you um, play with Richie Kanata, for those who don't know, was the original sax player for the Billy Joel band. Yes. And Liberty uh devito right is that getting yes liberty right? devito yep is the original drummer correct and you play with them and then are is anybody else original in the band yes and russell jabbers uh was the original guitar player um okay. so, so you have the original sax player the original uh drummer and mm -hmm. the original guitar player yes and you get yeah. to play billy joel more often than not that's pretty cool life it is yeah it is <laughs> Yeah. It's very, it's very cosmic, um, you know, and it's interesting because like I mentioned, you know, having to fight my way out of a record deal and, you know, dealing with bouts and levels of depression and stuff. 
had I not gone through such a jagged journey, I would have never met these guys, you know, mm. um, and trying to and did they inspire you to also move forward with her. Oh, 100%. Girl? I yeah. mean, you know, I'm still what you would consider a young guy and they, they outplay me. Like they, they are relentless. <laughs> they play. They can play. They're and... relentless. Yeah. Yeah. The first yeah. time I heard them, I was there to audition and originally it was as the second chair. The singer that preceded me was a guy named David Clark, very talented guy. He was a true gentleman to me. He was starting to expand his footprint as a performer. And so he was kind of looking to the next chapter of his career. So it was good timing for them to bring me Which into the Which is kind fold. of where you're at right now, right? In some ways? In some ways, yeah. I, I do see this as a very reciprocal arrangement for us because there's only one Billy Joel. So I'm not trying to be him. My ambition You're is to be, to be Dan him. Orlando. Who Correct. Is a better version of Billy Joel today. Well, your words, not mine, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love Billy Joel, but yes. I mean, sure. Look, I, I get that critique all the time. You know, you're trying to be like X person. You're trying to be like that person. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to be myself and chart Correct. my own way forward, which is, yes, you're influenced by those people, you know, in your life, Billy Joel and Richie Kanata and Liberty DeVito, but. You're at the end of the day, your own person, right? Correct. Exactly. That's where your album comes in. Tell people about your album. Sure. So Heritage Trail is an eight track album that I started recording uh, in the summer of 2021 is when we really got serious about it. Um, There are some songs on there that are 10 years old and there Uh, are others that were written within the last 10 years ago. Yes, yes. That had been been a part of my original catalog during my time in Florida that had never come to fruition or had been released. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. So So it's it's kind of a culmination of where you've got into this point, right? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. So thank you. It was a really... What's your favorite song on the album? Right now, my favorite song on the album is Out of the Blue. Um, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, thank you. Because I think that it really, you know, so many experiences of my life over the past few years um, have really just been like out of the blue. You know, they've been so they've been <laughs> yeah. so random and they've been so for, like you can't. Write for as long as I've known you, that's a very true statement. It's yes. just sort of out of the blue. Yeah. I mean, you know, we 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 said we'd go there, so this seems like a good time to go there. Like, I joined the Lord. I think I need to interject and just let people know I met Dan at a Billy Joel or um, Lords of Fifty Second Street <laughs> performance because my father-in-law told us uh, the Billy Joel cover band was playing. We go backstage <laughs> to meet the band, which is some older men, you know, Richie and Liberty and Jen and I and somebody else who we'll get to in a second. Met them, and I was like, I see Dan on the side. I'm like that guy's got to be like the person who sets up the equipment. Cause these men are much older than Dan. And then sure enough, the show starts and here comes Dan dressed up as Billy Joel and blew the house out. I was like, who the hell is this guy? And why didn't we talk to him backstage? Yeah. Um, and so then from we, there, it just was spiraled out of control, which made it, that it night did. so special. It was unbelievable. Uh, uh, you you had that whole front row standing up, you were high fiving all of them, uh, and you know I met I my wife. Had, I think <laughs> what had happened was it was still during COVID. I don't right. think I had had human interaction with that many people in eighteen months. A lot of people yeah. had. 
I was like, let's high five, let's dance. Oh, you know, yeah. I, was, I felt like like I had been uncaged that night. Joshua, I got to tell you, you weren't alone, too. I mean, you started what everybody else was thinking, but for that entire year of touring, we felt that everywhere we went. There That's was awesome. a different, palpable level of energy that, like, life as we knew it was back yeah. to a certain extent. Um, and people and, were just eager to be out. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So the energy was crazy, and it, we just fed off of it. Every night that we went out to do this, um, people really needed it, you know? They, I mean, we just didn't realize how much the live show experience is important to the fabric of society and our ability to gather and our ability to just do things spontaneously was all taken away for the better part of a year. So you're right. It was just like all of this energy is just getting lit let out of a bottle um, over the course of a year and a half after 2020. So for listeners, are you still touring with the Lord of 52nd Street? I and am. Where, yes. And how can people listen to your album? Is it uh, Spotify, YouTube? Or, you know, how, Give sure. people some shouts here on how they – I mean, I included it in my newsletter, but you know, how, how do you promote your album right now? Sure. So first and yourself I say, and the Lords. Yeah, so I think the best resource is my website, which is danorlandojr.com. Um, that has my full tour schedule, including what I do with the Lords of 52nd Street. Um, the Lords of 52nd Street.com also has their tour schedule as well. And then Heritage Trail, my album, is available anywhere that you stream or download music. So just search Dan Orlando Heritage Trail on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, YouTube Music, the gamut. Um, an we'll, older an older person in my family who you know, whose name shall remain anonymous, <laughs> asked a question that I legitimately want to ask you. Can they buy a CD version of this, or are we like out of that marketplace? <laughs> yes, we are going to have CDs available on my website uh, probably within the next few months. Nice. Um, we are awaiting an order of CDs right now in which we're going to just do a private sale because we have a lot of people and supporters that have been with us a long time that we want to make sure they have an opportunity to get one first. Um, and then we're also, we want to give ourselves an opportunity to evaluate the physical prints of the CDs and make sure that there's nothing that we, else we want to include. Um, and we've already found some things that we'd like to modify that are not necessarily wrong with the layout, but are just going to help us market a little bit more. That's awesome. That's so fine. thank you. I'm happy to say we will have CDs available. I would say probably by the end of this quarter, maybe like the middle of April. So CDs are still a thing, though. That's kind of really the question that I'm asking. They are. They are. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? I, I don't remember the last time that I bought a CD. So, I mean, yeah. that's both sad and crazy at the same time. So I think – and uh, I was having a conversation uh, working with a great company out of Nashville. They're called Another Good Day Entertainment. Um, and they're helping um, my wife and I with the campaign to get this music out here and build an audience. Uh, and we had a great discussion about this, that CDs are, they harken back to an era of physical ownership when you can look and see yeah. who wrote the songs, who played on the record, who's the album behind, you know, who's the record label behind it. Um, and it also gives fans an opportunity to feel like they own the music and that they are a part of this initial step of the journey and they're convenient. You know, they're small. Uh, most cars still come with a CD player. 
Um, sure. <laughs> but but this is an interesting. You'll find this interesting too. Um, in the initial wave of CDs that we're going to make available to the public, we're going to have a QR code that allows people to find the music on Spotify. So that so it you're also, leveraging techno- modern technology to do correct. Both. Yeah, that's so, awesome. So and and not for nothing too, but say you have like I just sold a few CDs and uh, last night I had a show again in person, private sale, that sort of thing. It was an older couple that's come to see me the last few times at this venue uh, in New Jersey. So my thinking is that not only do they support us monetarily by buying that CD, they put it in their car and their kids, their grandkids, anybody that they pick up, anyone that they interact with, they become a marketing vehicle for that music, you know, so that the next 10 people that hear that CD in their car go and find Heritage Trail on Spotify, which then allows me to continue to build and grow to grow an audience, which is going to be my main goal as an artist in perpetuity. Uh, one thing I wanted to maybe get into just a, for the, the wonkier side of this is I've been following the issue of artificial intelligence quite closely. And uh, OpenAI, which is the largest generative AI company in America, now valued at $80 billion dollars. Released a new or is preparing to release a new feature that can create videos for you in literally like 10 seconds. For an artist like you, an independent artist like you, do you fear generative AI? Do you view it as a tool? Are you skeptical? Like, how does that, you know, for people who are following that issue, you know, we always hear how Google feels and how Apple feels. What about like people who are going to be directly impacted by that on the front lines, like a musician like yourself? Do you, how, how do you view that world? Uh, it's a great question, or your definition, excuse me, of AI at large. And the reason I say that is Autotune and Melodyne, which are mm. both technologies uh, that are deployed in a studio, have been accessible and available to us for over 20 years. Um, and they stati- they actually scientifically enhance um, raw data that you're getting from somebody who sings and maybe is a little flat or their pitch is off or somebody plays the wrong note on a guitar or a piano, we've had the ability to surgically fix that for almost Which is a, a form of artificial intelligence. I would say it is, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you're essentially it's a form of technology. Yeah. yeah, it's a form of technology that, you know, you're taking human-generated sounds and you're, you're enhancing them because – the audience's ears have become so accustomed to things that are too perfect. So in our community, we've we've been having that debate for years and years and years. Um, You know, whereas like somebody who's more of a traditionalist old school would say, you know, the Beatles left mistakes in their projects. You can hear flubs, you can hear harmonies that aren't quite there to which I would counter and say, yes, but, Capitol Records and their engineers were at the forefront of stitching tape and taking different layers from eight tracks and and trying to, you know, they were taking all sorts of technological chances, especially from the Sgt. Pepper album on forward mm. to try to distinguish themselves. Uh, and, 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 and give, so the Beatles were using some of that technology with that absolutely, album to absolutely. distinguish themselves. But so, so like you're the Beatles and you know, is, is clearly a different category, but do you find it, are you skeptical or optimistic about the future of AI on how it could help or hurt you? I am cautiously optimistic 
Okay. Uh, the reason I say that is we've already had to straddle a lot of lines as to how we utilize technology that improves what we do in the studio uh, and then compare that to what we're able to do on stage. I think that the artists that have made it work and that have rose above um, are the ones that really focus and concentrate on their live performance and their ability to connect. And they don't just take it for granted that because they have a, a physical record that does well or a recording that does well, that that's going to immediately translate into them being a great live performer. It just you still have to do the hard work. And yes. Yes. The onus I, is on us to do more of the hard work at a higher level because AI is going to give us that much more of an edge as far as how we present ourselves. So I'm cautiously a, optimistic, but we need to just utilize, we have to use our common sense yes, and make sure that we're you. not, we're not substituting technology and AI for what's supposed to be the fundamental strengths of an artist that works. But I think that's the fundamental lesson of AI, right? Like you and I are in different fields, but you know, as a small business owner, I'm looking for competitive advantages with technology. Can I automate mm -hmm. processes? Can I do that? Yeah, and AI does that for me. It helps manage my calendar, do a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, if I have a prospective client, I still need to perform to get the job done. And I think that sometimes that debate over AI misses that point. So let's transition, Dan, a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about maybe two other quick things before we wrap this up. Some music and the importance of life. If you had to give me a soundtrack uh, I don't know, three to five songs that would be your soundtrack of resilience. What would they be? Sure. I would say uh, Coldplay's uh, Viva La Vida Ooh, uh, would definitely be on there. Good one. Um, I love that album and I love that record particularly. I remember listening to it a lot uh, when I was in college. And as a conservatory musician, you get trained on every three to four months you have to take all the material that you've been learning and studying and play in a very sterile setting in front of the entire faculty, uh, what they call a board. So it's almost like you're just re-auditioning for the right to be there in the mix. And so I listened to that record a lot because it talks a lot about themes of life and death. And Chris Martin's been very open about how he had a fear of death and he utilized his art to create and kind of not get over it, but just make peace with the fact that, you know, we're all here for a limited amount of time and we have to make the most of it. Um, so I, 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 that would be one for sure that comes to mind as far as resilience goes. Um, from a Billy Joel perspective, I would say New York state of mind because Ooh, uh, I'm really, I'm really missing my guy uh, Richie right now on the road. Um, Richie Kanata is the saxophone player who's on that record uh, private galas or, you know, duos or parties or whatever that, you know, we were playing that song. Um, and it's I'm, such I'm, a great song, right? Because of yeah. the piano, the, the prominence of the sax player, even the drums when they come in with oh, it's yeah. such a beautiful, organized, performed song that in addition to the great words that it says, but. And, you know, so like, as a Philadelphian, I would say, like, I feel like New York is, is definitely a part of my DNA. I love New York. I love the spirit of that city, uh, the hustle, the grit, the fact that it really never sleeps. And Richie embodies that to a T. I mean, he never stops. He never stops moving. He never stops moving and shaking in life. He's, 
he's kind of the guy that's like, you know, you don't just sit on the sideline and wait for life to happen. You shake the tree and Good you job. constantly yeah. go to that well and put yeah. yourself in a position to succeed and elbow your way to the front. And yeah. that's what he did for me. And so whenever I, I hear that song, um, it'll pop then, up on my playlist or what have you. Okay. So <laughs> you have Viva La Vie, you have uh, New York State of Mind. Any others uh, that would be on your personal soundtrack of resilience? Uh, it's a great question. Um, what about I the would, new Billy Joel song? What do you think about that one? I think it's fantastic. I'm so happy he's creating again. Um, I think Freddie Wexler, his producer, did an outstanding job. Um, and sometimes it just, just takes a nudge and a little belief from somebody who's kind of outside your purview to get you to be confident again. Um, and I, I give Billy Joel a lot of props and credit for putting himself in an environment that's outside of his comfort zone, clearly. I mean, you know, to step in and, and really make a concerted effort to create in the pop space again, you know, after almost 30 years, it takes a lot it's of a guts. Good, it's a good song, too. It is. Yeah. It's a great song. And yeah. it's it's a collaborative, you know, it's like we talked yep. about. So yep. it's one of the few songs in Billy's career in which he trusted a number of other writers to write with him. And I think that was smart. You know, the the tastes of the audience have changed so much. And, you know, I, I think obviously it still comes from him. You know, you and I are both huge Billy Joel fans. So you can hear that's a Billy hear, Joel song, you know, in every way, me, shape or form. Yeah. To me, that sounds like straight out of the 70s in all the right. It ways. is. A, it goes a kickback. It's not the River of Dreams album. It's no way before that. The influence that comes into that one. Yeah. Which River speaking, of Dreams is really a poppy album. Oh, absolutely. And it's a great speaking, album, of the, but it's speaking of the use of AI, you know, the video that you yeah, sent me the other day, it's, yeah. it's so wild. But I think that's that's an example of AI that's deployed intelligently because they're trying to show the arc of this person's story and career. And the fact that this song is his uh, taking a step out back into the limelight after so long. You know, why wouldn't you deploy technology to show how this guy yeah. has been at the piano bench just dominating for so long, yeah. you know, and this is still just a huge step for him artistically. So yeah. I thought it worked. I thought it was great. I think the song is fantastic. Um, and I hope it's a sign of more things to come. I, you yeah. know, maybe it's an album. Maybe he gets back on the horse and turns out more music again. I know he has two small kids, so I'm sure they would love to see what their father does for a living. It's not just one, one on the more stage. album would be fantastic. I I'm I'm all for it. I, I hope so, it's one more for yeah. sure. So for the Swifties out there, <laughs> if yeah. you had to pick a Taylor Swift song to be in your soundtrack of resilience, what would it be? Uh I really love that song, um, I'll Bet You Think About Me. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And only the true Swifties will know that song. Yeah. Well, and then it was also re-released with Chris Stapleton uh, as a duet. Um, and he's he's fantastic. But it's a great song. I mean, you know, she's she doesn't suck. You know, <laughs> I mean, you don't get to be where she is without being a fantastic writer. But that song in particular is very resilient to me because everybody no matter the brave face that you put on, everybody deals with resentment and, you know, looking back and thinking about all of the people that told you that you weren't going to amount to what you think you were going to amount to that tried to put limits and parameters on your potential. 
Um, and so when I listen to that, I think, wow, here's somebody who, you know, is open and vulnerable enough to share the fact that, you know, they they themselves think about this person in a way that's saying, like, yeah, I'll bet you think about me. I'll bet you go about <laughs> your daily life. And, you know, you've never found anybody better with your organic shoes and your your stupid couch and, you yep. know, your indie music that you think is so much better than mine. Like, yep. it's such yep. a guttural, visceral song. Um, and I thought the re-release was excellent, too. Yeah. So let's let's put a wrap on this a little bit. Uh, let's talk about, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning or somewhere in the podcast about the cluttered media environment we live in. And there's mm -hmm. so, and I just kind of think of it even broadly, which is a clutter of information. We have so much information at our hands. We don't know what to do with it. My escape from that clutter is often music. Uh, what's some practical advice you have for people and the role music can play and making your life just a little bit better sometimes? Um, I would say that when somebody tells you in your everyday life, you really need to check out X, Y, and Z musically, do it. do it. Keep a journal in your phone, write it down, and then when you get some spare time to make a playlist, give yourself that opportunity to experience that music. One ear open at all times. You can discover and find different things that you would have never come across, and it'll personalize the music that you're listening to a lot more. Instead of just saying, oh, I heard this on a commercial or, you know, a radio station plays this song 12 times a day, you know, oh, my buddy Joshua said, I really need to check out this artist and this album that I would really like it. Okay, so instead of never checking it out, which is what most of us do, it goes one ear and out the other, dedicate some time to make a little list to yourself of all these recommendations and spend some time with it and see if it unlocks anything else in your purview and try to utilize opportunities to expand your horizons as much as you can. And the more I, you personalize it, the more it'll stick. I heard three things you said today, which was the importance of just doing it, getting shit done, yeah. collaborating and mentorship. And I think those are really powerful things to keep in mind as a lesson from this podcast. Dan mentioned this at the beginning, uh, the, uh, theme music for the Resilient Insight podcast is Music in My Head and uh, by Dan Orlando. And Dan, I wanted to thank you for that song because it has so much meaning to me on so many different levels. You know, you talk about the music in your head when you were writing the song. I always have a lot of thoughts in my head and uh, ideas and things I want to do. And sometimes I procrastinate and don't get them done. But uh, that song really hit home for me. I think it has a great meaning. And I want to just personally thank you uh, for letting me use it. Exactly. Yeah. Check out danorlandojr.com uh, or you know, JR for Junior. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. where Dan's all over the, you know, the Mid-Atlantic and the, the Northeast performing. You know, if you have some free time, I would strongly recommend you go uh, give Dan a, a listen. And they could get your music on any streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Music, That's right. Amazon That's right. Music, the whole nine yards. The whole nine so, yeah, Dan, I want to just thank you again for being on today. Um, great conversation. Again, like I said, the, the three things, mentorship, collaboration, and just getting shit done, I think are really important lessons to kind of uh, have here. So uh, with that, I want to end with this. If you haven't subscribed uh, to the Resilient Insights newsletter, which is the foundation for this podcast, partners.us, be sure to subscribe to the Resilient uh, Insights podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you're looking for me on social media, youtube.com backslash resilient partners, twitter.com backslash Joshua Baca, linkedin.com backslash Joshua Baca. So with that, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Joshua. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I just can't see the past before me.